0: Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Conscious Company Media's World Changing Women's Summit, hosted from February 20th to the 22nd at 1440 Multiversity outside of Santa Cruz, California is a first-of-its-kind gathering for female professionals who work at or are interested in conscious and sustainable businesses. Top female CEOs, entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and thought leaders from around the world will gather for three days to connect and share wisdom, insights, and best practices for thriving while changing the world for the better through the power of business. If you're interested in joining or know someone who should attend, go to worldchangingwomensummit.com for more information. Welcome back to the show. Today we have David Gribro. He's a author and CEO at Knowledge Star. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think you have an interesting kind of take with with your new book, kind of Minds at Work, but I maybe before we kind of get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
1: I grew up in Manhattan. I was raised born and raised there. And from Manhattan, I moved to college. Actually, I went to Harvard and moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: Okay, what did you take at Harvard?
1: I took film in it and um, public communications. Okay. And I spent a good portion of my time after I graduated, actually, as as a narrator for films and an announcer. Very cool. For WGBH in Boston. And then I got really interested in education, adult education.
0: Okay. How did you make that transition?
1: That transition was an interesting, it's very interesting how I made that transition. Okay. I had been spending a lot of time trying to understand how people learn, because when when you're talking to people and you're wondering how they're listening to what you're saying, I was actually working as a producer doing uh, educational and documentary films. I always ask the question, what, how, does it, how does the idea come across? I've always been fascinated. by As I'm talking to you right now and as your listeners are listening, what's going on? In other words, I know that there's something going on in my brain and it eventually comes out of my mouth and it goes through the phone and gets put into the radio and it comes out of the radio into someone's ear and something happens in their brain. And so that brain-to-brain communication has always fascinated me. Sure. And what fascinated me the most was how people learn.
0: Okay. In
1: other words, what I'm trying to do is teach you something. My question is, how can I do it in a way that helps you learn it?
0: Sure, interesting, okay.
1: So I began to look at education and I began to then find myself studying the neurosciences which were just emerging at that point. Okay. And I started to realize a lot about how people learned, and I started to talk to people who were involved in, in education in K-12 as well as adult, and I was talking to friends of mine who were working in corporate education. And one of my friends was working in IBM and said, why don't you come to work for us? We're doing a lot of work. It's interesting work in education. Sure. That's how I moved into it. So, for 25 years, I was working at IBM in their education organization. Not only their education of their customers, but also internal education.
0: Okay, interesting. So, so as you, you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, keep going.
1: Well, as you do this, you know, there's different kinds of education that you do. Back then, there was no e-learning, for example. You were basically Mm -hmm. standing up as what we now call the sage on the stage and you had your overhead projector and your slides that you drew by hand the night before and you're trying to teach somebody something and it always was amazing to me that anyone learned anything number one but then it was even more amazing to me that they remembered it because oftentimes they didn't and so all these questions started to come up and then as we moved across the different technologies for the transfer, for knowledge transfer, the same questions kept coming up. I mean, it's really interesting. It doesn't matter what the technology is, the same questions are always coming up because the basic learning process never changes. Okay. And the basic forgetting process never changes.
0: Interesting.
1: Did that give you an idea of how I got here?
0: No, I, I think that's good. That, that's quite interesting. So I think that's a good transition into kind of talking about, you know, the book and kind of the rationale behind why why you decided to co-write the book because you, you have a, another author uh, uh as well correct
1: yes Stephen gill
0: sure so how did before we kind of get in the book i'm really curious to know how did you and steven meet
1: Stephen and i met online okay interesting match.com <laughs> <laughs> <or> <laughs> We we met online through blogging. We were both blogging about the same subject, which is learning, Okay. and I would read Stephen's blog, and I'd write him a note saying, Stephen, that was a great blog. Do you mind if I repost it? And he'd write me a note saying the same thing about something I did, and then we started to work together and co-write blogs, and we found that we were getting really good responses from readers, and that's how we met. And at one point, I said to Steve, you know, we're writing about learning cultures. We we tend to spend a lot of time trying to discern what a learning culture is and define them. Why don't we write a book about learning cultures?
0: Okay, interesting.
1: And that's where it started. Okay. When we started working on the book and we started looking for a learning culture, we never found one. Because our definition of a learning culture was an organization that promotes learning as the most important job you could possibly do, it supports collaboration, which is an element of learning. It enables and allows for failure, which is a critical part of the learning process. And it does a number of things, characteristics and attributes. And we couldn't find any company anywhere in the world that was a learning culture.
0: OK, interesting.
1: No, that that's what we did.
0: No, keep going. Sorry.
1: What we did discover that was even more fascinating were new companies that in a way, even though they didn't claim to be learning cultures, came about as close as we had found. And suddenly we realized that there was a, a tremendous distinction between the old model and the new model and our next question was why. Why was there a difference between these two companies? Why was one company operating under one set of assumptions and these new companies? And there weren't many of them at that point and there's still probably a 100 sure. in the world right now. Um, why were these? What were the assumptions of this new company, and why were they closer to the idea of employees continually learning, and why were they enabling employees and empowering employees to learn? What was different about these new companies? And that's really the genesis of the book.
0: Interesting. So the the book's called Minds at Work: Managing for Success in the Knowledge Economy, and so I, I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into kind of what you guys cover in the book, because I think that kind of the nine to five day that we kind of operate in and kind of how companies kind of operate today is kind of archaic, right? And it, it seems like, you know, a lot of companies, if they don't kind of modernize, they they might not die off, but, you know, the chances of them becoming kind of obsolete is a lot higher. Is that is that a fair statement?
1: I think that's absolutely correct, Kevin, and I think not only will they become obsolete, but I think one of the things the book points out is that as you move towards obsolescence, you move towards disappearing. Okay. Companies really do go out of business if they can't make this transition. There's a number of things that are happening in the world right now. A lot of people think of them as trends, and I think in many ways they're irreversible and unstoppable. Okay. Technology. Technology, artificial intelligence, uh, the diversity in the workforce that's never existed before, the availability of geography that's never existed before. In other words, there's no borders anymore for ideas, for services, for products, sure. disruption. And when you, when you look at all these forces, you realize that the companies are now being pushed into the future. And it's interesting. I, I mentioned to you before we started about the fact that we're not very good at understanding the history that we're making.
0: Okay, sure. We are
1: that history. And 50 years, 100 years from now, people will look back on this point right now, this moment, this program that people are listening to, and they're going to say amazing things were happening at that point in history. It was the first time in thousands of years, actually, that we had moved from a labor-intensive economy to a knowledge-intensive economy, from a labor-intensive economy to what we call in the book a mind-intensive economy, where suddenly people are now doing work with their minds. Sure. The issue is, and this is the issue you brought up, we've learned to manage people over the past 100 years. We built our management schools based on what we had learned in factories and manufacturing operations and the places where people were working to fulfill and respond to the needs of the industrial economy. And that's pretty much the assumptions and the ideas that we're still using today to work ourselves into the knowledge economy. And the difference is the knowledge economy, because it's driven by these trends, your workday is very different now in the knowledge economy than it might have been 50 years ago or 75 years ago or 100 years ago in the industrial economy. To your point about 9 to 5, 9 to 5 was developed because of the machinery that people were working on. Sure. There were were time motion studies that were done, and they found out that people could only work for so long on a manufacturing line, for example. Right. And after a certain point, if they weren't replaced by the next shift, and it wasn't so much the machines, because the machines could be running 24-7. Sure. But the people couldn't be run like machines. Right. So the nine-to-five work period was created It's the same kind of artificial time that was put on a, on the one hour or the 55-minute classroom. Okay? Sure. There's no particular reason why a classroom has to be 55 minutes. It was done for the benefit of the professors who were teaching it. Interesting. So we look at all these things and they're all in a sense, they're artifacts. They're artifacts of a previous economy that we've just adopted and moved forward into this economy. Now, in the past, that wasn't too much of a problem because the changes in the labor-intensive economy from agricultural to industrial were not so dramatic that people couldn't make the transition in a way that wasn't jarring. The transition from the industrial to the knowledge economy is so dramatic that right now I think, I think most people right now are wondering what's happened.
0: Sure, that's fair.
1: And I say that, there was a conference recently, uh, Elliot Macy put on Learning 2018. Okay. They had a number of CEOs on stage and they asked them, what's the biggest problem you have? All of them more or less said that the biggest problem they have is the pace of change. They can't keep up with it.
0: Okay, sure.
1: Let's go back 50 years ago. Put those same CEOs on stage, ask them the same question, you're going to get a very different answer.
0: Sure. You're
1: going to get a very different answer because things change more slowly. Yep. One of the things I remember Bill Gates said years ago was that the pace of change has changed.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay.
1: That always struck me as a brilliant insight because he's suddenly realizing that these forces that I mentioned, technology, artificial intelligence, all these forces that are at work in the world right now are moving us at light speed forward. And we've reached the point that I think of as the inflection point. Okay. And when you look at a when you look at a chart and you see suddenly the hockey stick where the inflection point is reached and it goes shooting up. Yeah. Yep. I think we've reached an inflection point, and we're right at the beginning of it between the labor intensive world that we used to live in and the mind intensive world that we're now entering.
0: Okay.
1: Interesting. So,
0: I'm curious then to get your thoughts. We kind of were talking about this before we we actually kind of recorded. There's kind of like three big things that you've kind of noticed and you kind of write about in the book. Kind of what are they and and why did you kind of decide to make those kind of big points?
1: We realized that the topic was, in a lot of ways, so new that we had to build Bridges.
0: Okay,
1: it's very hard to it's very hard to jump into something that's brand new without building a bridge for people, stepping stones, if you will, from the past. Okay. So we asked ourselves three big questions: How did we get here? Uh, where do we need to go? And how do we get there? Okay. And this was after we couldn't find that you know wonderful idea of a learning culture. After we realized it didn't exist, we started to ask why, why, why. So we decided the first thing we needed to do is is look at what we are doing right now and ask, how did we get here? And we suddenly realized, well, in fact, we have reached that inflection point between the labor-intensive economy that we all lived in for thousands of years and this mind-intensive economy, which is is so new that people, for the most part, are running as fast as they can just to understand what it's all about and how to to keep up and make sure that it doesn't pass them by so quickly that – Out of nowhere, a small company emerges, and the next thing you know, they're out of business. This is a very real issue for people. Companies have gone out of business. One of the points we make in the book uh, is that there's a Darwinian rule at work here, and that is if your company can't evolve and respond to the changes that go on around you, you will disappear. And there are companies, in fact, that couldn't make the change fast enough. that kept managing the old industrial model and because a lot of the work that they were doing required people using their minds and they were competing with other companies where people were just using their minds from the get-go. They went out of business. A great example is AT&T. Okay. So the first thing we tried to do, first thing we tried to do the first section was understand how did we get here? Then the next section in the book is, well, where do we need to go? And we kind of took the role of a epidemiologist. And we started to say, well, If we look around at companies around the world, what we see is that they all seem to be suffering from the same symptoms. They're all suffering from an inability to find talented people. They're all having problems keeping the talent once they find them. The employee engagement in their workplaces right now are as low as it's ever been uh, in terms of the measurement of the last 25 years. People just aren't interested so much in what they're doing, and they're finding that more and more people as the economy gets better are starting to think about finding a new job. They're not happy with their work. They can't seem to find a way to balance their work and their life. And the list goes on. And the funny thing is if this was a few companies here and there, you'd say to yourself, it's not a big problem. But when you suddenly see this problem across the world, thousands of companies, you have to ask yourself a question. And we took the role of, like I said, epidemiologists. And we said, if this was a disease, and these were all symptoms, then what's the cause? What's the root cause? Because something's going on here. Something's going on across the world that's causing all of these companies to have the same problems. So the second part of the book was an explanation, and an exploration of the symptoms and what we thought the root cause was. And the third part of the book was, okay, so this is where we are, and this is how we got here. And these are the symptoms and this is the root cause and this is what we think will solve it. And that's all fine and good, but the next question you have to ask yourself is, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me as an individual employee? What does that mean for me as a company, whether you're a small, mid-sized, or large company? What does it mean for me and how do I make this change in order to sync up, if you will, with the knowledge economy and be successful?
0: Sure no that that's that's actually interesting because I, I guess the thing that I'm kind of the the most interested in and I I very much understand that like I've basically been in tech my whole career. you know, I worked McDonald's and at a grocery store kind of you know in my mid teens, but other than that, I basically worked at kind of tech companies and I understand how, basically a tech company, if, if they're not kind of trying to be cutting edge, they're kind of falling behind. And so I, I understand that I've been kind of very, very fortunate and kind of never had, except for, well, I worked at the university here and it was a little bit, there was times there was a little bit kind of archaic and, you know, you didn't understand why management did some, some things that they did. But for the most part, I've been really fortunate. But I'm very, very curious to get your thoughts on kind of like, how do we get people... To get to where they need to be today, right? Because I think, like, how do people, especially big companies, because the, the thing that I find fascinating about big companies is how long it takes to make a, even like a small change, never mind a big change, where you have kind of people doing, say, a startup in the space where maybe they have 10 employees or, or whatnot, where, and they're basically, just iterating and building something quicker than a big organization with, you know, say thousands of employees kind of are just like, forget it. And in, in some ways it's almost like they're the little company's almost like a rebel in that industry. And they're just trying to like go as quick as they can to actually kind of like take over that industry. Right. And sometimes that company gets acquired by a bigger company, but I'm very curious to know and get your thoughts on kind of like, how do we get there?
1: That is the key question. When you get to the point where you understand how we got here, then you get a sense of where we need to go. You really do ask that question, which is, okay, how do we get there? How do we make these changes? And and as you just said, and as we all know, on a personal level, change is hard enough. If you go to look at a a small organization, it becomes exponentially more difficult. And then as you go up the scale to a mid-size or or large enterprise, it becomes even more difficult. And the answer, I'm not trying to avoid the answer, but the answer is difficult because there is no one-size-fits-all to the answer. Sure. And, And what we found is when we started to survey companies, we were asking the question, where do we need to go? You know, as put ourselves back in that role of epidemiologist, we started to find companies that were asymptomatic. They didn't have the symptoms. They didn't have a problem attracting talent. They had talent that was lining up around the block to work for them. They didn't have a problem keeping people. As a matter of fact, they were rewriting the old contract between employee and employed that you were here for life if you want to be. Uh, they were changing so many things that the people who were working there suddenly found themselves for the first time feeling as if they were being seen, as if they were being heard, and they would come to work, and this really struck us. They would come to work feeling, and the only word that made sense for us after we summed it up, they came to work feeling fearless. They weren't afraid to try things. They weren't afraid to make mistakes. They weren't afraid to learn new things. They weren't afraid to say, I need some time off. I'm just taking some time off because I need it. There wasn't a a need to fulfill some HR requirement of how many hours have you taken and how many hours do you have left. the, The operating system, if you will, in the new companies was so dramatically different that we said to ourselves, okay, those companies are the model for where we need to go. But the next question then is, how did those companies get there, and is that transferable? Some of the things we found are transferable. For example, the change really has to start at the top of the organization. Now that doesn't mean that the CEO of a large enterprise has to be the person where the change starts.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: You could could be running a small unit or a small division, for example, in a large company, and if you decide because you're running that division that that's where you want the change to start, the change can start in that small organization if you're starting a new company and you're running the company you can make the decision I want to I want to run a company that's based on the new model a new operating system as opposed to the old one I want to become uh, in concert with what the needs and the trends in the knowledge economy are as opposed to the old way of doing things in the industrial if you're an individual Again, the answer is the change, and I know this sounds like a cliche, but it's true. The change starts with you. Okay. You you can start to lobby in your organization. Let's say you read the book and you understand that these new organizations with new operating system have people operating in a very different way. They come to work feeling differently, acting differently, uh, dealing with other people differently. Their their focus, for example, is on. Collaboration, communication, not so much on command and control. So you're a manager and you decide, okay, it's and instead of taking the old industrial model, which is command and control, I'm going to I'm going to become a model of this new way of doing business, which is collaborate and communicate. Mm-hmm. So the change can start there. But the change the change has to start with somebody who has some level of impact, broad impact on that of the organization okay that's one of the things we found out in all the organizations that we studied change started somewhere high up or where somebody had some ability to change some section or organization within the company that they were in
0: okay that's interesting so but uh, well I'm curious then if say you're I don't know like maybe not that high up in the company but you you potentially want to be high up in that company one day, is there anything that they can do to kind of, well, maybe, I don't know how to frame this, but like maybe in the sense that like, if you just start showing results, does it really matter if you're high up or not in a company to actually like start changing things?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you why. Okay. When you start, when you start to look at these other companies that were asymptomatic, that didn't have all the problems that all the companies around the world seem to be experiencing, and it's funny for me, Kevin. Just as a side note, sure, take a look at the one. Take a look at the one problem: employee engagement.
0: Okay.
1: Employee engagement has turned into a cottage industry. There's every single one of those symptoms: how to attract talent, how to retain talent, employee disengagement versus engagement. Uh, how to get more innovation and creativity out your employees. Every one of those symptoms has become a cottage industry. There are people out there who are telling you how to work on this one symptom. It's sort of like putting a, a band aid on a huge problem. It's like, well we're not getting to the real root of the problem, but we're trying to like stop this little piece of it from continuing. The dilemma is that it doesn't work. Okay. What we found it what we found in these new companies is that because they had completely revamped and remodeled dramatically so their operating system, the way they do business, their basic assumptions about management and learning, they didn't have the problem. They didn't need to go out and hire the consultants, for example, to figure out what the problem with engagement were, because their employees were so engaged Interesting. That they were running to they were running to work every day.
0: Interesting. So so is there any like tips or advice or uh, that, you know, companies can actually kind of s- start to do to get their employees kind of engaged? Is it like, um, does it, does management need to change? Does, you know, h- how do you kind of work with companies to actually make this change? Because based on probably company size, sometimes that's easier or harder, probably based on size and maybe how kind of in how kind of the mindset is at that company right is that fair to say and like how do you kind of deal with that
1: i think at the heart of it, it size doesn't have an impact on whether or not the company changes interesting okay because the company the company has to do the same things what what's What changes, Kevin, are the logistics. In other words, it's much harder in a big company to reach out and communicate with everybody than it is in a company of 25 people. Okay, sure. If you and I were in a company of 25 people, I'll pull us all together in the cafeteria and we'll have a conversation. Sure. Simple. We've got 2,500 people, we need a big auditorium. Sure. We've got 25,000 people and we're spread out all over the world, that's another logistic problem. Right. But at the heart of it, the message is the same. Okay. The message is, for example, and again, the messaging that you need to transmit to everybody and start to model and live, comes from looking at these companies that didn't have all those symptoms that the old industrial model companies had. And we drew down from those companies some observations and some lessons. For example, one of the things we saw in these, in these new companies, these knowledge economy companies, was that everybody in the company believed that sharing knowledge was power. Simple statement, sharing knowledge is power. Okay. It's contrasted contrasted with the old industrial model companies where the belief is knowledge is power. Okay, interesting. Now, if you believe that knowledge is power, there's a lot of things that flow down from that in the old industrial model companies conversations that are kept secret decisions that are never shared in general with the organization Uh, people who work in in enclosed offices away from everybody else who's working out in the cube farm, for example Um, a lack of transparency about the way decisions are even reached and implemented when problems are encountered suddenly the senior level of the organization gathers together to try and solve the problem and the solution is sort of passed down because that's what knowledge is power means. What has to happen is that, is that managers at any level and every level have to suddenly realize that they're going, be, they're going to be changing the way they do work, and they're going to be changing in a way that's better. It's very difficult. If, as a manager in a company, I remember what it was like to work at IBM and to believe that knowledge is power. It forced me into it forced me into a situation that was oftentimes very difficult. Someone would come into your office and they'd ask you a question and you know the answer, but for some reason or another, you had been in a meeting and you were told, "Don't tell anybody the answer yet," or "We'll tell them. We'll have public relations put the answer out," or "We'll have HR put the answer out." And so you basically you're told, "Well, I can't tell you," or "Let's change the subject," or "I can't tell you what the answer is yet." So you're forced to lie to people. Okay. Interesting. Um, it's not a good, it's not a good situation to find yourself in as a person because sure. that's not what you want to do, how you want to interact. With. Once you start to understand as a manager that sharing knowledge is power, and that, and this is why I like the title. We spent a lot of time trying to arrive at the title of the book, Minds at Work. Sure. The reason, the reason I really like the title, is that if you think about it, we're in a company together. And I'm not looking at you in the old industrial revolution sense of a pair of hands capable of doing a job. Eh.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm looking at you as a person who's bringing your your life experience, your intelligence, uh, your talents, your ability to critically think, uh, your hobbies. I mean, all of you, whatever is in your mind, that's what's coming to work every day. And there's no sense of discrimination in my Way of looking at the new company because all minds in some ways are equal any given mind on any given day can come up with a brilliant idea or a brilliant solution or look at a process and think about how to do it in a way that's better interesting minds are equal so in the new organization what you find when it comes to the idea of knowledge is power versus sharing knowledge is power when I start to understand that sharing knowledge is power, suddenly it becomes a very democratic and all-inclusive organization. And so to make that change, even if I'm in a small group in a large organization, I can start to share what I know with everybody on my team, for example. In other words, I don't have to play the role of like the big manager. Okay, I can play the role of, I'm in the trenches with you. There was a great story recently that I read about it was a high tech company, and they just hired somebody who was working in their an uh, the area where their servers were located. And for some reason or another, the person unplugged the wrong plug that was attached to a server, and the company went down for a couple of hours. Okay. okay. And you would think you would think that that person was in big trouble. Sure. You would imagine that when that person got called into the new boss's office, that the new boss would say one of two things: you're fired. Well, yep. you're fired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, you would just assume that. You'd, you'd pretty much be packing your stuff up at your desk and putting it into the box. We're going to be a supported down carrier. Yep. What, hap- what happened that I thought was wonderful was that in a sharing knowledge environment, that person, this is a true story, that person went into the boss's office, and the boss said, you know, I should have helped you label those wires. We didn't have them labeled correctly and it's not your fault that you accidentally pulled the wrong one out. Why don't you and I go down to the server farm and label all the wires together so that we'll make sure this never happens again.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's quite fascinating, actually.
1: So that's not only sharing the knowledge, that's sharing it to a level where I'm down in the trenches with you Mm -hmm. and we're all working together, and we're all working together to fulfill the mission, which is to make the company Mm -hmm. successful. There isn't anything that, that you know that I shouldn't know, and there isn't anything I know that you shouldn't know, because if we all know everything, it's obvious that we're working better. There's a quote in the book that talks about the new model company is a hierarchy of ideas. Okay. Not a hierarchy of roles, okay? So if, if it's all minds that are working in this organization, then it's a hierarchy of ideas that happens. not so much I'm in a different, better position because I have a title that you don't have. And I think that's the crux of it. So I can, I can model that behavior. I can start to, for example, model the behavior that, you know, shared knowledge is more powerful than me holding knowledge. I can model the idea that instead of command and control, which is the old industrial model, which is how most companies are organized right now, around the world, it's all command and control. Which came out of the military, by the way, when companies started to be formed, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we started to form up these things we call the corporations. We did, they didn't always exist. The other issue around the way we look at ourselves in history, we sort of think that what we have now, we always had. Well, we didn't. It's something we've created. We've imagined it. Sometimes I think the biggest problem is that it, uh, it's a problem of imagination that keeps us from going to a better future. Interesting. We, we imagine the idea that these old businesses could be put together into what we call corporations and we built them on the on the military model which is command and control and if I want to change things today now to be more in sync with the knowledge economy I have to move to what we call communication and collaboration so I move away from command and control to communication and collaboration and again I think you might be able to see how things are starting to line up if I'm starting to understand that sharing knowledge is power then the old command and control model doesn't work anymore. As a matter of fact, the old command and control model is disabling rather than enabling.
0: Interesting. So I'm curious, though, and I get that there's going to be kind of people set in their ways and they're not willing to change, But and forget about those people for a second, but say I, I'm upper management at a company and I you know, love this i these ideas and I want to implement these ideas and, I you know, I'm willing to do that and I know there's a bunch of people on my team that are willing to do that and are, and in a lot of cases, probably looking for, you know, kind of what we've been talking about this whole time. How do you kind of go about kind of introducing this to the company and maybe even getting the people that are, are a little bit skeptical or, or not really interested into kind of st- at least thinking about or, or starting to kind of buy into kind of modernizing the workplace. Because for for me, I think it's kind of much needed for a lot of these companies. But I think a lot of companies, sometimes like the employees just don't care. They're like, I work nine to five. I I check in at nine. I check out at five. and take my hour for lunch, and I take my couple coffee breaks, and I don't really care. Like, how do you kind of engage kind of both sides of the, like, yes, I want this, and kind of like, I could care less, I'm just like a nine-to-fiver.
1: I think that's a great question, and that is a question I think that becomes the most difficult question to answer for many of these companies. Okay. I think that part of the answer, and again, I mentioned one size does not fit all, so you have to go into each situation, each environment, each context, and try to figure out where they're starting from. One of the strategies I developed in the book is is the difference between what I call the protectors and the innovators. Okay. Any new idea that comes into an organization is always met by two groups of people. Okay. Essentially, when you sort of strip away all the other stuff, it's meant by two groups of people, the protectors and the innovators. Now, the innovators are the people who jump up and down and raise their hand and say, oh, this is a great idea. I love this idea. Let's do this now. And the protectors are the people who are saying, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this is going to impact on my job. I like my parking space. <laughs> I don't want to give up my office. Uh, I've been here for 22 years and I worked really hard to get to this position and I'm not sure I like this idea. Sure. What you need to start to do is instead of just jumping to the innovators and agreeing with them and saying, let's go, let's charge ahead, you have to stop. You have to say, okay, what is it that I have to offer and what can I bring to the protectors that makes what they have now better even in this new context?
0: Okay, Okay, Interesting.
1: How can I say to you, you're not gonna give up, not only are you not gonna give up anything, but you're going to gain something. Then start to really explain to them what it is they're going to gain. Okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, because I I think, like, I'm a true believer, like, I remember when I was in my early 20s, kind of in tech, you, you kind of just like, I don't understand these certain things for whatever reason, good or bad, doesn't really matter. But then like you get a bunch of experience you know, kind of late 20s, early 30s, and you start thinking like, ah, okay, like you don't understand how important experience is until you have it. And I truly believe that. So I think that kind of, to to your point a second ago, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're basically saying like, okay, we, we value your experience. We value, you know, what you've brought in your couple decades here, but we want to kind of modernize and, and make even their lives better, right? And, and they might be a little bit skeptical at first, but I think if you do it properly, kind of the innovators, maybe the younger people, and kind of the people that have been there for decades could very much benefit from this, right? Is that, is that fair to say?
1: I think that's absolutely fair to say. I and mean, I, think, I think there are proof points, and I think the proof points exist. Let's say you're in company A.
0: Okay. And you want to make this
1: change. I think the proof points exist outside your company. And they're, they're accessible. There's lots of them in the book. And you can say, we can show you, for example, that in a company like UKTV in Wales, okay. Darren Childs ran that company and he decided, okay, we're not doing very well as a TV station. As a matter of fact, we're about in the 11th place. and We need to do better. Okay. So they dramatically changed the company and they moved from the old industrial model to the new knowledge economy model. When you talk to some of the people in that company and you can find what they say in the book, for example, let's say I'm still in company A, and my managers are saying, well, I'm not sure I want to do this because I like the way things are working right now. Well, the question is, why do you like the way they're working right now? And you drill down and you drill down and you have to engage in a conversation. This is the, the step number one. Okay, Once you finally get somebody who decides this is the direction you want to go in, that's when the conversation starts. So the conversation starts with the protectors who may be senior managers or mid-level managers. You find out what it is that they like currently about what they're doing. And then you say, well, as we move to this new direction, not only will you continue to be able to help people grow because that's one of the things you say you'd like, but you're going going to be doing it more actively because you're going to be spending less time for example, on setting up meetings because everybody's going to know what they're supposed to be doing so you don't have to have all these check-in. Interesting. You're going to be spending less time sending and answering emails all the time because everybody's talking all the time anyway. It's not like you're shut away in your office, focused on some other kind of meeting, some other place in, in the company, then you refocus back on the project that your team is working on. You're working with your team all the time. The one thing you're doing is you're staying in constant contact with them and that takes away a lot of the pressure. So what you're going to find is that your, your job is much more enjoyable. You're going to be getting better results from everybody, which is something you always like anyway. You'd like to succeed as a manager. You are successful as a manager. You like the fact that you've gotten promotions. That's still going to happen. It's just going to happen in a way that's going to be much more enjoyable for you. You can point to these other companies that have done this, and they can say, yes, this is exactly what we're experiencing.
0: No, sure. So uh, this might be a little off topic, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of remote work, right? Because if you're kind of trying to modernize your company where, say, everybody has to be in the office nine to five, Monday to Friday, like, have you found or have done any kind of research around Letting maybe people have flex time or maybe they don't need to be in the office Monday to Friday. They can work from home a day or two a week or a few times a month. How, d- does that kind of help or hinder or does it really kind of depend on the, the corporate culture of the company that you're working with?
1: I think it really depends on performance.
0: Okay. In other words, Interesting
1: if you want me to do something and I can go off and do it on my own or I can be working virtually I and mean, be just as effective to get the job done then you have to ask yourself again why why becomes a very important question here why do I want you in that office why do I want you spending two hours a week commuting and wasting your time and my time why do I want you coming in all stressed out from a terrible commute what I really really want you to be doing is, is getting the job done. Sure. Okay? But if the job, for example, requires you working with other people or meeting other people, if you're a salesperson, for example, well, working virtually up to a point might be fine, but you got to get out to see the customer. If you're, if you're doing something where you want to like share ideas with people and collaboration is something that's important because you want to have an organization where every now and then people get together, Google's a great example. They like people in the cafeteria to sit together who've never met each other before. And other companies are adopting this as a way of doing business
0: together. Sure.
1: The reason is they're looking for what they call these serendipitous moments. Okay? Yep. So I'm I'm working I'm working on something that has to do with with neuroscience and learning, and you're working on customer satisfaction or you're working on user experience or you're looking at new designs for websites or you're working whatever you're working on and we sit together and we start talking, have that conversation, a brilliant idea can emerge. Sure. And all of a sudden we're going off in a totally new direction. So working virtually works when it does and it's appropriate. And sometimes it's appropriate to be working collaboratively. Okay. And face-to-face, person-to-person. So I don't think there's a rule to be made about it. There's funny stories that come up in the book. There's, there was a company called Semco in Brazil, Sao Paulo, okay. run by Roberto Semler. Have you heard about it?
0: Uh, no, but go on. I'm curious.
1: It's a, it's a wonderful story, and it's a great TEDx presentation if you ever get a chance to see it. It's There's a preamble as to why he asked why, but at one point he started to look around his company, and he said, why why? Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why am I having my salespeople come to the office every day when I know that by Wednesday, they've met their quota? So salesperson A meets their quota on Wednesday and yet they show up on a Thursday and a Friday. If they continue selling, it causes problems for the company because they have to worry about manufacturing, Mm -hmm. warehousing, logistics, they have to change quotas, they have to look at QA. things happen, if they just meet their quota, that's what was expected, that's what was set up, and the whole organization is like dominoes, okay? Mm-hmm. So the person meets their quota by Wednesday, and what what happened at this company called Simcoe is that he looked around and he said, well why do I have my salespeople once they meet their quota showing up? Why don't I tell them, look, if you meet your quota by Wednesday, go away.
0: Interesting. <laughs> so
1: go to the beach. Sure. So go to the beach, you don't need to be here, okay? If you're here selling, you're just gonna cause problems. Go to the beach. If we're gonna change your quota next year, maybe you'll need to work four days, but whatever. When you meet your quota, you meet your quota. So the point was, it's the mission. Focus on the mission, get the job done, and however you get the job done, that's fine. If we have time constraints, you know what they are. If we have financial constraints, you know what they are. Meet the mission, okay? Get the job done. When you start to say to people, and it's, again, it's the, the reassertion of the old model into the, the new operating system, the new organization. No, when I, we had manufacturing... No, keep going, sorry. We had, we had, when we had production lines, you had to be at the same place every day at the same time doing the same thing. Sure. That was the model. When we began to move... And there's an interesting point that I really need to make. Even though we talk about people who work with their hands versus people who work with their minds, you know, managing hands, managing minds As the transition started to happen, as we reached this inflection point 34 years ago, you could be in banking. Mm-hmm. You could be in a cube farm. Now, Granted, you weren't making anything at the end of the day, but you weren't using your mind either. It was kind of mindless work. And the dilemma was you can still be managing people in that environment, even though they're not in a factory You can still be managing them as if you're in the industrial economy. You can still be using command and control, the idea that knowledge is power. Your education can be all push and not pull. Uh, People are not learning continuously, they're learning when they're told to by event, by prescription. And the difference is, it doesn't matter what you're doing, the difference is how are you managing people and are you engaging their minds to be as as effective as possible. Sure. In a new environment, you don't have any choice. In the knowledge economy, you just don't have any choice anymore. And that's the point I think that really we need to make the people who are running companies today is that you don't have a choice anymore. The, the trends are not going to stop. Sure. The technology, the the growth of technology is not going to stop. Artificial intelligence is not going to suddenly reverse course. Right. Um you know, and it's it's funny how you keep coming across these things. There's a great story in the book about pizza. Okay. I'm sure you I'm sure you've eaten pizza of and course. you know how pizza's made. Yep. There's a company in Silicon Valley, it's called Zoom Pizza. Okay. okay. And one of the things we talked about in the book is the trend of automation. Well, you go to Zoom and you order your pizza and you find out that you know you have Pepe and you have Giorgio in the kitchen and they're rolling out the dough. And then you have Vincenzo and he's putting the cheese on it and he's putting the sauce and whatever else on it. And then you've got Marta, you know, she puts it in the oven and waits until it's done, pulls it out, pizza gets served. What you find is that Vincenzo and Pepe and Giorgio and Marta, they're robots. Yeah? Interesting. The pizza's made pizzas made by robots. So things that you normally never think of anymore as as something that's being automated is now being automated. And when we looked at that and the question that came up is when there are no hands left, what do you have to manage? Sure. And the only thing you have the only thing you have to manage at that point are people's minds. And so that's that's the big issue. These trends are not gonna stop. These trends are gonna keep pushing businesses in the direction they're pushing them in. If you keep treating each of the things that are happening in your business, like the the problems of finding people and keeping people in engagement, if you keep treating them as symptoms, you're never gonna get to the root cause. And I'm not saying the change to to the new operating system, to the new knowledge economy model is easy. It's by no means easy. It's probably the most difficult thing you can do, but it's doable, and the nice thing is we have all these wonderful examples of companies that did it and that are doing it and that are working hard to make it happen. And even the companies that have done it, the one thing that they always have said to us is that it's a learning experience. Every sure. single day, they're figuring it out. Interesting. We're just now, at this inflection point, we're just figuring out how to make it work.
0: No, I, I think that's great. And and sadly, David, we're, we're out of time. And I'm sure we could probably go on for another hour or two. But... Let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and the book.
1: Uh, The book's available at all the online book websites. Okay. And it's also available through ATD, the publisher, ATD Press. And if they want to, they can write me directly at mindsatwork.co. Yeah, not con, but .co. And that's the... Uh, Website that's linked to the book where people can reach me, and I'd love to hear what people are thinking and reacting to as we were talking. I'm, I'm more than interested in the future of work because I know that I will be there sooner than later. I would rather have a sense of what it is and where it is and what I have to do than sort of go blindly smashing into it and try to figure it out at that point.
0: No, I I, I think that's great. And again, David, I I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day.
1: Oh, Kevin, thank you very much. It's been great.
0: Perfect. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also, check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.